they have no guarantees about returning or not returning. And it is unsafe for them to stay abroad. And it's also unsafe, unsafe for them potentially to return home. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm James Palmer, FP's senior editor, and you're listening to The ER. Joining me in Washington today is FP's correspondent for all things China, Bethany Allen Ibrahimian. Over the past few months, Bethany has published numerous stories about China's influence on U.S. universities. With us over Skype is FP contributor Zach Dorfman. Zach recently published a piece for FP called The Disappeared, detailing the Chinese government's worldwide kidnapping and coercion campaign to bring Chinese expats home. Both of these actions signal that the Chinese government, even as it grows more autocratic at home, is expanding its reach abroad. Whether through buying influence at universities and among academics, or through more threatening methods, such as the forced repatriation through kidnapping of former Chinese citizens, the Chinese government is attempting to stretch its long arm as far as it can. Bethany, let's talk about the universities first of all. Now, obviously, you know, all foreign governments try to, to some extent, influence the global discourse and the, the German Goethe Institutes, the British Council and so on. What makes these Chinese campaigns different? Well, the Chinese campaigns have an element of coercion to them. So if we're talking about, you know, the Chinese students and scholars associations, the Chinese embassies keep very close tabs on them, keep, keep up very close relationships with them, give them lots of money. And with the money comes the understanding that if you don't help us when we ask you to, We'll take that money away. For example, last year, the embassy asked uh, many CSSAs around the U.S. to post very ideological articles into their social media groups and to hold these ideological events to go along with the party congress. So there's this understanding, you know, you're from China, you understand how this works. If you decide not to do this, what's going to happen? You know, maybe you'll go back to China, you'll try to get a job with a state-owned enterprise, and you won't get it. The difference if you, you know, talk about like the Goethe Institute or, you know, the U.S.'s like National Endowment for Democracy, those don't have that kind of pat on the back and a kind of, you know, while you're kind of, you know, gripping the other person's arm extremely tightly. It's, you know, it's, it doesn't have that kind of coercion to it. So these are forms of sort of soft social pressure, relatively speaking. It's not, not so much that, you're, that there are clear limits or clear restrictions, but that your Chinese students are made very conscious that they're part of a political discourse that includes China back home, a, a country that's getting increasingly repressive, particularly for academic and political careers. Well, that's one aspect of it. So I, I, you know, I wrote one very sort of deep dive on the CSSAs. But there are other aspects of it, too, that are less well understood, uh, because there there are more obvious you know, attempts to to threaten. You know, for example, a well-known Chinese dissident based here in the U.S. was holding a salon um, to talk about, you know, Tiananmen, maybe talk about Taiwan. And, you know, p Chinese people that this person didn't know came in and started taking photos of the attendees. What are they going to, who are the, who are they? What are they going to do with those photos? Um, where are they going to send them? So there's these intimidation campaigns that also happen. You know, sort of, this is sort of a different track of influence, if you will. I think for Chinese students anywhere around the world, there's the understanding that they did not leave the Chinese state behind them when, when they left China. So, Zach, uh, your piece talks, too, about these methods of coercion, about ways in which people are forced back to China or persuaded to, uh, pers persuaded to come back in difficult cases. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And I think this is, you know, of a piece with 
Bethany's work on, you know, kind of China's ideas about its extraterritorial jurisdiction and the ways in which it feels like it has the right or the authority to surveil and in some senses control the activities of individuals of Chinese descent abroad. And the the piece that I published at FP was a, a deep dive into, um, I would say, the, the kind of the, the the sharper point of the spear in terms of these coercive techniques. And those are up to and including alleged kidnappings of Chinese nationals or individuals of Chinese descent in a number of countries worldwide going back to the mid-1990s. The public the cases that were previously publicly known went back to, I think, 1993, 1994. Um, the first one that I was able to find was in Macau, which was then under Portuguese control. And uh, over time, what multiple former intelligence community officials told me from the United States, Australia, and Canada was that there was an expanding Chinese coercion campaign that included threats to people's families back home, remote coercion via the phone or other methods, and then up to and including actual in-person kidnappings where Chinese operatives, most likely MPS or MSS officers or, or agents, would drag somebody onto a boat. They would drug them, they would hit them over the head, drag them onto a boat and ship them out to China. So, I mean, with these with these forced kidnappings, they, they, they literally just depended upon sticking somebody in, in a crate on a boat and hoping that nobody in the on the US side saw it. How difficult are these things to find? How difficult is it to sort of spot somebody being forcibly taken out of the country? Well, I think in certain circumstances, it's, it would be quite difficult. In other ones, it, they are done more surreptitiously. Um, I, I should say that in the US cases, there was never proof from the former intel and folks that I spoke with of those kinds of boat-oriented kidnapping. That was Australia in particular. You know, Australia, as was put to me, has a, a very large coastline. And the way that the kidnappings occurred there, according to one former Chinese diplomat who defected, was in at least one case, this person was dragged onto a small boat. And then out at sea, there was a Chinese state shipping liner that that person was transferred on to. The U.S. cases are a little bit different, as far as I understand. These are cases where, and these are, these are cases that seem to have been replicated in places like Canada as well, where some suspected MSS or MPS operatives, again, um, would show up. Uh, they, they would show up at somebody's work or their school. Um, one case in the story that I discuss is a graduate student at the University of California at Berkeley. And the they would basically say to these people, you have 24 hours, you're getting on a plane with us. So the implication being that if they didn't get on the plane, worse things would happen to them or to their families. Exactly. And there are, you know, there were there were instances of, you know, specific threats. For instance, you know, for instance, there was a case in Egypt that was reported in this piece about a Uyghur family that was told that if they did not if they did not return, their, fam their entire family back in China would be thrown in prison and their property would be, would be expropriated. If they did return to China, their family would be unharmed and their property would be left as is, and they would also be left unharmed. What apparently ended up occurring, according to a close family member of this couple, was that they did return to China out of fear of their family's safety, and they were immediately thrown in prison. So these premises can't necessarily be trusted, too, of course. I mean, there's always this... So I guess there's always this gamble, if you're a dissident or particularly a Uyghur abroad, 
like do i do i cooperate in the hope of sparing others or do i or do i continue resisting because these people aren't trustworthy anyway uh, i think that's very much the case and i think it's that's part of the um I think that's, that's, that's part of the squeeze that uh, has been being put on these individuals is they don't know, they, they have no guarantees about returning or not returning. And it is unsafe for them to stay abroad. And it's also unsafe, unsafe for them potentially to return home. So it's, it's a case where people are being put in extraordinarily averse situations. And many times these cases have gone unreported. So we've seen in both these cases the university influence, the kidnappings, the coercion. We see this sense of ownership that China has over not just its own citizens, but people who are often former Chinese citizens in some cases, or even just people of Chinese descent. And we've seen that we've seen that being talked about more and more in Chinese state rhetoric, the idea that the Chinese diaspora should be under the influence, under the control of Beijing. I think, um, you know, at the same time, we're now seeing in, in Washington uh, a real turn against engagement with China, a real turn against the idea that, uh, our, well, a real turn towards the idea that, that Chinese policy over the last sort of 15, 20 years on the US side has in some way failed. Uh, I'm not certain whether that's true or not. That's really a topic for another podcast. But with definitely this sort of who lost China 2.0 idea coming up. Now, a lot of these people are people who are in either American citizens or resident in the U.S. or who the U.S. has an interest in protecting and certainly an interest in protecting academic freedom, uh, both in the U.S. and hopefully worldwide, though under this administration, that's always a little bit doubtful. What can the U.S. do about these kind of programs? What can the U.S. do, for instance, about these attempts to influence uh, Chinese students on American campuses? I think the U.S., first of all, I mean, politicians need to speak out about it. The more that the Chinese students here know that it's not just within their community that they're talking about it. If they hear, you know, American politicians talking about it, if they were to hear the president or, you know, a different president than the one we have talking about it, if they were to see more media articles about it, if their own university administrations were to make statements about it saying we will not tolerate, you know, foreign government threats, intimidation or interference on our own campuses. I think that would make a huge difference for Chinese students. Chinese students feel completely alone here. I mean, a lot of what I've written in my in my pieces are kind of an are basically an open secret, you know, in in the Chinese um, diaspora communities here. But but people outside of those communities have no idea. And I think for Chinese communities to know that U.S. society, that American society is on their side and will fight for them, will really help uh, give them a lot of confidence and help embolden them to maybe make a stand. As it is, I think that Chinese students here feel like they don't. There, there is no other option. That's why you see basically, you know, almost total silence from Chinese students. And, and we reread that, oh, ex, you know, political silence, uh, unless it's for a patriotic reason. So, for example, um, at UCSD last year, when the Chinese Students and Scholars Association and other Chinese students on campus made a real uproar about the university inviting the Dalai Lama to come give a talk. And so we hear Chinese students, you know, doing what students do and um, protesting something. Um but there wasn't, you know, uh, there was there was no group of Chinese students who were like, well, actually, you know, we have different thoughts about it or maybe on other issues. You know, we, right. n- we never hear from the sort of, you know, Chinese students who would have opinions that wouldn't uh, go with Beijing. And I don't think that's organic. 
And I mean, there's there's real risk, not just from the government, but socially for Chinese students who do try to take different positions. I remember about a decade ago, there was a case of a Chinese student who attempted to get between a group of pro-Tibetan and anti-Tibetan protesters Ooh. and who ended up being the target of a human flesh search, a doxing yeah. in China whose parents were harassed to the point that they divorced, wow. uh, who really paid a huge social uh, and personal cost herself for getting involved in these issues. Well, Speaking of doxing, I mean, that happened just last year at University of Maryland. The, there was a Chinese student, a graduate, who gave a, a talk at commencement. And she said, you know, I, I love this, you know, democratic, free American air. You know, it's I, I learned you know, all about freedom and democracy when I came to the U.S. And she was just eaten alive on the Chinese Internet. They posted the address of her, of her family in China. They, you know, she was just over, you know, overwhelmed by an outpouring of, you know, terrible comments online on the Chinese Internet. Which of course, I mean, that can happen any, uh, you know, anywhere. People on the internet are awful all over the world. But in China, there's no pushback ab- against this. The, the sort of rabidly pro-government, pro-patriotic side is now the only side that's allowed in Chinese online discourse because it's been so crippled by Beijing over the course of the last few years. So whereas elsewhere, there might be, uh, you know, in cases such as Gamergate, say, in the US, there's there's been a pushback, there's been support, there's been support even from the authorities in some cases, though, ineptly. In China, the authorities are on the side of the the sort of cyber bullies. Right. And it's not like there's some kind of nonprofit legal fund that her, you know, that her parents can apply to. And, it, you know, they can't start their own. Can't, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a that's a great point. So, Zach, turning, turning back to this issue of sort of what the US can do, the US has been very silent about these coercion campaigns, at least publicly. Uh, We've heard some talk that it might be discussed more openly in the future. Um, Do you think that would achieve anything? I do. I think the the most important thing is there's the naming and shaming component of it, right? Which means that the U.S. and its its allies could make it very clear that they are aware of what Chinese operatives are doing on foreign soil, and and to push back against it because it's there. You're talking about a series of of potentially you know heinous human rights violations, and moreover, I think that doing so would potentially create a thaw, which would make individuals um, and their families who have been subject to these campaigns potentially feel like they can go and speak to law enforcement officials in the U.S. and elsewhere, which I think would be really important because I, I don't I think that there's been a systematic underestimation of how um, uh, how fearful some of these communities are here of, of a government that is thousands of miles abroad. I mean, I will say also on, on the prior point, um, I, I think there's another thing that, that could have been done, and it hasn't been done yet, I think it might be wise to do in the future, which is to actually come down harder on suspected Chinese operatives that are engaging in these sorts of activities domestically. 